Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Good morning. Today is the day. It is Friday, December the 6th. It is the sixth day of Advent 2019. And so we are in Luke chapter 6. Uh, it's a long chapter. There's no way that we could really survey the entirety of it uh, here at the at the show open. So let me just say this. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. Hmm. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. He says in verse 5, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, referring to himself. There are healing stories there uh, uh, that took place on the Sabbath. That Luke chronicles, and then there is um, uh, there is the equivalent of what? Uh, well, there's the the naming of the twelve apostles right after a full night of prayer. Uh, which uh, let me just say before you make any important decisions, a full night of prayer is a good thing to do. It's what Jesus did, um, and although he's not just our role model, he is certainly the one after whom. Um, our lives and decision-making should be patterned. So if you want to be principled like Jesus, maybe consider spending more concerted time, long lengths of time in prayer before the Lord, um, in seclusion, by yourself, in your closet, all those good things. Uh, And then we have the equivalent of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, recorded here in Luke as the Sermon on the Plain. Um, Not an airplane, but a plane, a level place, the sermon delivered from a level place. Uh, And we have a similar list to the Beatitudes that you certainly know from the opening chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. Luke complements them with uh, what are traditionally known not only as uh, as the blessings, but the woes. So this is the woe to you section of Luke. If you've never read the woe to you section, uh, I highly recommend it. This is the portion um, in which we get the teaching of Jesus to love your enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Consider that just for a moment, because we don't, we don't think of that as lending, right? When I lend something, I expect to get something back. That word there um, is actually lend. You and I would consider it just give. If you don't expect to get anything back, you're not really lending. You're really giving. So there you go. There's a uh, a conversational nuance for the day. He says, then your reward will be great. You'll be children of the Most High because he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. So the loving kindness of God, the hesed of God, the way that God shows his mercy to those who are ungrateful and wicked This, Jesus says, is what we ought to be doing as children of God. Pause there for just a moment because that is a hard teaching. Of all the things that Jesus teaches, Jesus teaches, this is one of the harder things. Not just to love your enemies, but to love them tangibly, to tangibly love your enemies. Be kind to those who are ungrateful. Be kind, be merciful to those who are wicked. Be merciful, Jesus says, just as your Father is merciful. This is also where we uh, get Luke's version of of the golden rule that we should do unto others as we would have them do unto us. We get the teaching about uh, being sure that we take care of and pay attention to the log in our own eye before we seek to help our neighbor with the sawdust in theirs. And we also get the the concluding teaching um, not only that out of the mouth does the heart speak, 
like the heart, your, your mouth is speaking what your heart is full of, which provokes me to ask frequently, what are you full of? And then Jesus concludes, uh, or Luke concludes chapter six in this way with the words of Jesus. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me and hears my words and puts them into practice, I'll show you what they are like. They're like a man building a house who dug deep down and laid a foundation on the rock. And when the flood came and the torrent struck, the house did not shake because it was well built on a firm foundation. But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice, it's like a man who built a house on a ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. We have talked frequently about the anchors for our soul. We have talked about building our lives on the firm foundation of of Jesus Christ. Um, and yet we all recognize that there are those around us and sometimes ourselves who who come to the place where we are presented with storms in life and all of a sudden we realize, oh, my house was not built on a firm foundation. It was some shaky sand. And so today, uh, consider the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Luke as we unwrap Jesus during this Advent, um, you know, let's take seriously the lessons of this chapter. Up next, Matthew Hawkins and I are going to talk about, uh, well, we're going to talk about Christianity in America, specifically evangelical Christianity. What's at stake in terms of the very close relationship that some evangelicals have to Donald Trump? That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. So Matthew Hawkins joins us um, to really to talk about things that we are not only reading in the headlines of the day, but experiencing as Christians in the American culture today. Uh, I'll describe Matt as a public theologian. He has served historically on Capitol Hill with the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Church. He is now uh, a Ph.D. student um, at this intersection of culture and politics and religion. So, Matt, welcome back. Thank you, Carmen. Good to be back. I don't know. That's a that's a sketchy introduction, but I think it's true. <laughs> you're, <laughs> uh, you're kind of introducing me. I really oh, liked your oh. uh, your your opening segment uh, on merciful, uh, and it's a good opener and a good uh, read into this topic we're going to talk about today. So let's talk about um, the the perspective that Americans have. We have this Pew recent Pew um, research released. That, you know, here's the basic takeaway. A majority of Americans see religious institutions as socially good, as a social good. Uh, see, uh-huh. see churches and other, you know, Christian institutions as strengthening morality and providing social cohesion, mm-hmm. you know, places where we connect. However, most also agree that mm-hmm. religious institutions should stay out of, and when we say stay out of, not seek to influence the, the adherents when it comes to politics. So yeah. I think that we have to talk about um, some kind of gross misunderstanding about both the church and the culture and the intersection of the two. Yeah, yeah. I, I think you're absolutely right to talk about a misunderstanding. And a lot of these things that we're seeing kind of bubble up right now and and uh, frustrate a lot of people, including the, the pupil form or the pupil, uh, you know, it's stuff that started cultural influences that started long before we were around um, this country. I see two big, uh, two big problems here uh, or two big influences. Number one, the, the kind of individualization uh, or privatization of religion. 
um, uh, going back, you know, well over a century um, in Western Western culture here in America, um, we like the uh, somehow we bought into this notion that uh, religion ought to be a private thing uh, and not so much a public thing. That's number one. Number two, American individualism uh, has influenced uh, not only Americans broadly, but even Christians to uh, kind of segment out our political activity from any kind of association with our religious institution, namely uh, the local church. Uh, and then on top of it, the third thing is that, uh, which, which is my passion, as you know, is that we, all of our models of all of our popular models that most people are aware of, of religious institutions engaging in the political arena are terrible. Uh, namely they are dictated by political parties. And so for an institution I think is, this is probably what is reflected in the Pew study is that. When people think about uh, church and politics or religious institution and politics, they think about them engaging in in, in partisan ways. Uh, and so that lets the parties, the political parties and candidates dictate to religious institutions their participation. Uh, and we haven't really seen any other way. So on the on the right, we have, say, for example, uh, a, a church in recent years uh, sing a hymn with a choir about a uh, current what was then a current uh, political candidate and now president, uh, but also on the on the political left, uh, you know we've seen pictures of uh, mainline churches draping uh, the communion table in a rainbow flag. Uh, I think both of those are examples of partisan uh, partisan churches. Uh, and then the other problem is we have silent churches, so we rightly reject those uh, those partisan models of church uh, political engagement, and so we don't say anything. Uh, the problem with that model is that we have entire congregations whose political views are shaped by everything other than the church. And so we need uh, a different model, a way that the church can confidently shape the political consciences of us as church members, uh, and then strategically, um, carefully, uh, when when possible and necessary to speak both from doctrine and I think consensus from a local church, uh, engage the policy uh, arena. Uh, but church is certainly uh, I think it's a it's a poor way to play the endorsement game. Uh, there's a lot of American history there, obviously, um, that we're kind of skipping across. But that's my that's my initial read. And I think. Well, I think, Matt, when you say um, the word church and when you refer to the church, many times, um, because I know you, uh, many times what you are referring to is big K kingdom um, concerns, right. yeah. Not, yeah. not necessarily whatever some group of people in a particular place that cobble themselves together as a current 501c3 called a church, right? You're, yeah. You are talking about big K kingdom issues, and you are talking about the gospel with a big G. Um, and... And so yes. I just think that's important for us to recognize and point out when we are having these conversations with one another um, in a culture that just grossly misunderstands what the church is and what the purpose of the church is, because the the, the individualistic um, concern where I could privatize, you know, my own concerns and I could disagree with doctrine, you know, at a personal level and therefore, you know, quote unquote, vote my own conscience, even that which is mm -hmm. absolutely not captive to the Christ revealed in Scripture. Right. I mean, right. I've been right. there. I have I have lived among that sure. people. Um, and so yeah. when we talk about these things, it what what is a little bit exhausting and yet critically important is that every time we use a term that's misunderstood, 
We have to define what we mean. And then we have to wait and see if the person we're talking with actually shares that understanding of that term. Right. And that that part, that part of the conversation, not between you and me, but that part of the conversation culturally gets kind of exhausting. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. Um, and uh, in all my academic papers, I go to great lengths to define terms. Uh, and even in, in popular essays, I I do the same thing. And exactly, you're exactly right, because we uh, we talk about the political witness of the church, quote unquote. Like, so you're right to drill down on that word. Uh, we'd often talk about it in the church universal, right? The kingdom, uh, the kingdom idea of the church. Um, the problem I see is that the only uh, method of political engagement we have is uh, s- Christian singular uh, in the American West. And this is a tradition I, I affirm and, and grow up in, but you know, uh, from people like uh, C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaeffer and Chuck Colson and Richard Land and Russell Moore and like all of my favorite um, uh, public theologians, uh, we talk about the church's witness uh, in, the, in the universal sense, um, but all of our activity is only the only guidance we have, practically speaking, is individualistic. And I think what we're missing is that in between, that uh, guidance for the local church as uh, Christ gave us a model for in the New Testament. And uh, I think that is going to help bridge the gap between uh, the church universal and uh, our activity as individual Christians, if that makes sense. It's a lot lot to unpack on a morning radio program, but that's kind of where I'm (laughs) drilling down. Especially on Fun Friday. Now there you go. Right, exactly. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, um, so uh, when we come back uh, with Matthew Hawkins, he and I have to take a quick break. Um, I am going to ask him to unravel a Twitter thread, um, which which is really about the political links between religious liberty and nationalism. Or that's the way I'm going to frame it. I'm going to ask Matt if I'm right in reading it that way. Um, and so when we come okay. back, we're gonna we're really going to talk about whether or not. Um, what I would describe broadly as what people experience as evangelical Christianity in America is actually not only driving a political train, um, but but also allowing for the very deep uh, development of a white nationalism. So that conversation up next with Matthew Hawkins. So we hear lots of terms uh, used, thrown about, particular, particularly by the media, sometimes in a very pejorative way. We sometimes hear the term religious liberty, um, and we sometimes hear the word evangelical. Uh, and the question really, I think, and this is the way that I'll pose it to Matt Hawkins right now, is religious liberty just code for the protection mm-hmm. of white Western nationalism? Mm-hmm. What a great question. Um the my answer, of course, as a Baptist is no, it is not. Uh, I do, however, see uh, that it is possible for any any particular kind of movement to kind of beg, borrow, and steal terminology from otherwise legitimate enterprises, um, or just different ideologies. Even even if uh, you're not making a judgment call between the two. So I think what we see here is um, in this recent rise of American nationalism, which frankly is 
still blows my mind as someone who was, you know, born, <laughs> born in the late seventies and grew up when, uh, we were taught about nationalism as, as part of distant history. Um, but the current rise of, uh, nationalism, uh, American nationalism and, uh, what we've seen, uh, in kind of the rise, uh, rhetorically and, and even in, in, uh, you know, murderous attacks, um, from white nationalists in America is really disconcerting. And so you have this critique uh, floating around now that uh, religious liberty, in often in scare quotes, is just code for protection of uh, of kind of white Christian uh, white Christian America. Uh, and to be fair, I have seen strands of people talking about uh, religious liberty when what they actually mean is what I call a religious protectionism. And so it's a religious freedom, but it's often only in the guise of protecting a particular view, a particular Christianity um, in the public square. So on the one hand, I clearly, obviously, uh, have had a career, almost two decades of uh, defending Christianity in the public square and uh, and for religious liberty. Um, but we can recognize that, that some people with whom we disagree on kind of what the broad project of the American democracy should be, uh, can use religious liberty in a way, um, that looks a lot like they're just kind of protecting their, their own culture. Um, and in this case, uh, white nationalism. So I think there are overlaps, but I, I don't, there are some, uh, who over the past week or so, uh, have because of that, what I would call kind of misappropriation or abuse of uh, the religious liberty concept strategically uh, people have decided that religious liberty is just a uh, is just a, a you know a, something to protect white nationalism uh, I would prefer a different uh, critique I would prefer to say hey you know white white nationalists stop using uh, religious liberty to that end that's not not religious liberty. That's religious protectionism, right? So let's call it something different, um, and, and call it for what it is, and not and not use the same terminology. Does that help? Yeah, and I think that that distinction is really helpful. Um, I think some of the some of what I need is, you know, this kind of equipping where I can I can pause in a conversation with another person when they are using a term. Um, I know how I understand the term, but I am genuinely trying to understand how they're using the term because. I yeah. don't think we're talking about the same thing. And so religious liberty, a religious freedom, um, has become a, a, a quite a, a, a big basket of confusion in terms of the way the terminology yeah. is used. And not, not only on what I would describe as, you know, the, the right side of the, of the theological aisle, um, but way over on the left side of the theological aisle, religious liberty is completely not understood the same way that it is understood right. by those um, on on the ideological or theological right, and so yeah. I have become more comfortable asking in conversations, you know, with people who are very progressive, uh, understand themselves to be Christians, but are from a very very progressive yeah. um, approach to things. I'm much more comfortable saying to them, "Okay, I feel like the way you are using the term religious liberty or religious freedom or your understanding of that is just really different than mine. So, can you explain to me what you mean?" That has been helpful. It's more difficult yeah. to have that conversation with a person who, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, seems to share my understanding 
of who Christ is as the second member, eternal second, you know, co-eternal second member of the Trinity, incarnate uh, in in Jesus Christ. I mean, like actually took on human flesh, dwelt among us. I mean, sort of the Nicene and Apostles' Creed version of Jesus, right? Like people who are right. confessional Christians who believe these things, believe he's coming again to judge yeah. the living and the dead. When I agree theologically with someone and yet they use the term religious liberty or religious freedom in a way that is exclusively protectionistic related to white Christians in America or in Western culture, that's the yeah. crowd I have a hard time then saying, okay, can we pause because your understanding of this concept is 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 not right? Yeah. Like it's policing yeah. my own side of the aisle, I guess, that I have a really hard time yeah. with. Yeah. Well, and it's it's complex um, to policing our own side of the aisle. I would say, look, some, you know, the people on the left uh, and Americans broadly uh, and particularly, frankly, uh, our brothers and sisters of color um, uh, have a have a historic point to be heard here in that uh, a lot of our American and even my, you know, Baptist uh, history on religious freedom focuses on the founding of America and, and folks like um, John Leland, who uh, as a Baptist minister collaborated with uh, you know, James Madison and uh, Thomas Jefferson to secure uh, this thing called religious liberty in, in the Bill of Rights. Uh, but what else was happening at the same time? Jefferson himself was a slaveholder, and we were denying Americans while while securing religious freedom uh, that I think is on, on the long term secured lots of benefits in good ways for Americans. At the same time, we were not extending all, all sorts of other human rights freedoms to African slaves. And so um, there's, a, there's a history to be unpacked here. I don't think it means uh, that religious liberty is, is purely uh, to uh, establish white nationalism or defend it. Um, and the other, on the other side of the coin, uh, it's complicated. The, the fact that we have a riff on American religious freedom now uh, is something that's only happened like within the last 20 years. Uh, in 93, uh, the RIFRA, Religious Freedom Restoration Act, that the uh, LGBT lobby uh, industry thinks is um, uh, discriminatory, that was introduced by Chuck Schumer and Ted Kennedy and signed into law by Bill Clinton and passed by a U.S. a unanimous U.S. House, 435 votes uh, and a, an almost unanimous U.S. Senate. Uh, and so like with that history, even just in the 90s uh, of bipartisan agreement on what this religious freedom thing is, uh, it's not – obviously it's more complex than being uh, just a white nationalist project. So I'd prefer to call out the white nationalists or just the not, you know, the nationalists, uh, and say, look, uh, you're, you're misappropriating the term religious liberty. Uh, this is not what that means. Um, and, and go from there. Let's not throw, uh, throw out the whole religious liberty, uh, baby with the bathwater. I love the way you help us think. Uh, thank you for doing so on fun Friday. Uh, that is Matthew Hawkins. You can find him on Twitter at MT Hawk. You can find him online at MatthewTHawkins.com. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Carmen. Have a great weekend. <laughs> you too. We'll be right back. All right. So next up, we're going to talk with uh, Dan DeWitt from Cedarville University. Every Friday, Dan posts this thing called the Worldview Weekend Reader. Um, and it's a it is a bit of an intellectual feast. I will I will acknowledge that. But what Dan does is he spends spends the week sort of you know putting in his proverbial pocket things that he is saving to read over the weekend, or things that maybe those of us who don't have time to read during the week uh, could read over the weekend over uh, you know over a good cup of hot coffee 
uh, on our Saturday. Dan also has posted right now um, at Theolatte.com, which is his website, a letter by Charles Darwin written to Billy Graham. And if you're doing the um, historical math, you're saying to yourself, that, that's, that can't possibly mean what it sounds like. It doesn't mean what it sounds like, but aren't you interested to know what it is? Charles Darwin's letter to Billy Graham, up next with Dan DeWitt. Parenting teens is tough work, even when parents agree on how a child should be raised. But the job gets even harder when moms and dads can't seem to get on the same page. Hi, I'm Mark Gregston with Parenting Today's Teens. Kids desperately need a cohesive and focused team approach from mom and dad. Now, this doesn't mean you have to change your personality. My wife and I parent differently. And our two styles combined provide a varied approach to our kids. What matters most is that my wife and I work together for the same purpose, and that's to raise healthy and mature kids. So, are you functioning as a team? Moms and dads will never see eye to eye on every issue, but working together and remaining on the same page will help your kids grow up. Learn how to get your team back on track. Get instant access to Mark's free parenting course online at freeparentingcourse.com. Dan DeWitt from Cedarville University. He is also the host of a website called Theo Latte. So, you know, think of God and a good cup of coffee, theolatte.com. Welcome welcome back, sir. Carmen, always great to be with you. All right. So I have to admit to you, this was kind of clickbait for me. Charles Darwin (laughs) wrote a letter to Billy Graham. Now, uh, my producer, Paul, did the historical math faster than I did. And he said, that can't possibly be true. So uh, tell us about the letter that Charles Darwin wrote to Billy Graham. Well, the American evangelist Billy Graham died 36 years after, or was born rather, 36 years after Darwin died. So of course their wives didn't overlap. But there was a William Graham who was a Victorian philosopher, and he wrote a book that Darwin read, took great interest in, and wrote him a letter. And the letter is quoted um, often by apologists. So the Billy Graham I'm referring to, and it is a bit of clickbait, I admit, um, but the Billy Graham I'm speaking of is that Victorian philosopher Darwin was interacting with. All right. So, um, you know, for those of us who didn't go to college recently, uh, Victorian philosopher, remind us, give us a little, uh, give us a little sense of what that might sound like. Well, it's it places him in his time period, and so it, we're all a product of our age, and so he was responding to the philosophical challenges of his day, um, and so he's responding to a scientism, which isn't that different from our day, and like a lot of things, um, what we find is that the issues that are dealt with in any stage of philosophy are perennial. They're the same things we'll deal with over and over again. So when we talk about scientism, we are talking about people who believe all of the answers to all of the questions about everything can be answered through science. Does that kind of encapsulate what we're talking about? Absolutely. That, you know, essentially reality is reducible to, you know, physical laws that can be studied through science. Um, This term has kind of had a revival in recent years. Alex Rosenberg, who teaches at Duke University, has said that he actually prefers the term scientism over over the term atheist, that he is a scientist, 
Well, he's mm. a scientist. He's a philosopher. But the scientism is better than atheism for him. Well, that's interesting. I, I, I kind of appreciate that because it at least it positively states what he does believe in versus mm-hmm. naming what he does not believe in. So I, I could understand that if I were a person who did not genuinely did not believe in God and believed that all of the answers to all of the questions uh, could be answered through science, I would want that somehow positively referred to in the way I was described. All right, talk with us about the letter then um, that Charles Darwin wrote to the then William Graham. Yeah, and so I'll actually go back to Alex Rosenberg, who's still alive today, um, who wrote a book called The Atheist Guide to Reality, Living Life with, or Enjoying Life Without Illusions. And what Rosenberg does is say that science is the only way to know stuff, and if science can't explain it, then it must not be real. And the things he says that we have to dismiss are basic human values like morality. He says moral distinctions are an illusion, personhood. We're not really persons, free will. We don't really make decisions because science can't really explain any of those things. And Darwin is wrestling with that probably in in a a less abstract way than Rosenberg is. But what he was struggling with is if he is just um, an animal like a monkey, different only by degree, not different in terms of kind, then the problems that would plague a monkey's mind would surely plague his mind as well. And so William Graham's book, The Creed of Science, is speaking to that that way of seeing the world. The science is the only way to know things. And William Graham said that's that's a religious conviction. It's a creed. And it was a creed that William Graham was skeptical of. So I appreciate that in um, that in your post at theolatte.com um, on this topic, you give us a link to um, to the full transcript um, uh, of this of this correspondence project. I also appreciate that you gave us this link to um, a really helpful brief overview of Graham's book. I think mm-hmm. a lot of us need that, Dan. We like we need you know we need to be reminded that good books have been written over the course of time that actually help us understand the conversations of our day. But then we also recognize we don't have unlimited time to sit mm-hmm. and digest those. So um, make make an appeal here for people to read more original sources um, that are linked to in pieces like yours. Like, right, it's wonderful for me to understand the basic, um, you know, clickbait, wonderful way that you are getting me into this conversation. It's another thing mm-hmm. for me to then click through and do the deeper study. Make an appeal for that. Yeah, I would say, you know, not all of us have time to be experts in every area, and I certainly wouldn't claim to be probably an expert in really any area. But what we can all do is find reliable sources that can help um, simplify concepts, can help summarize books for us, and then point us to those things that we say, you know what, that's something I want to go a bit deeper in. So I don't have time to read everything. You know, goodness, I've been on social media seeing everyone's end of year top book list. And it's great and convicting all at the same time because there's no way I have time to read all of those. And and so that I would say, you know, find a way to um, be able to use resources quickly and to be able to digest what others have said of them. And if you trust them, then you can find a good summary. Now, one quick word about books from earlier periods. Of course, this book isn't that old in terms of, um, you know, the grand scheme of human history. It was published in 1881. But what is helpful in reading old books is it reminds us that they're dealing with the same issues we're dealing with today. And it also reminds us that Christians were giving a faithful answer in previous generations. We're not the first ones to respond to these things. And we we really need to stand on the shoulders of those who went before us. 
So uh, every week you aggregate a list called the weekend, uh, the Worldview Weekend Reader. Oh, I have the words backwards. I'm going to have to pull the thing actually up. Um, and and you actually spend time helping us uh, understand what mm, maybe we ought to be reading over the weekend. So when we come back, will you give us a preview of this week's Weekend Worldview Reader? I would love to do that. All right. So that's up next here with Dan DeWitt. We'll be right back. things that's in my inbox each week is Dan DeWitt's Weekend Worldview Reader. And so I thought it would be fun for him to share with us a little preview of this week's Weekend Worldview Reader. First of all, let's talk about a biblical worldview or a biblical worldview perspective, um, because what you are advocating is that I would be reading widely and deeply and then thinking and applying my faith to what's happening in the world around me. And you're advocating that I would do that, right, through a biblical worldview. So we we should define that for people. Well, you know, to put it in simple terms, I like to tell audiences when I'm teaching, the best way to develop a biblical worldview is to read your Bible a lot. And as you read the Bible and immerse yourself in the world of the biblical writers, you begin to see life as they do. And what I'm trying to do with the Weekend Worldview Reader is to help people see um, what's going on in the news and philosophy and science and pop culture. How can we think about that from a Christian worldview? And so a biblical worldview is just a set of lenses through which a Christian sees the world, trying to have their mind conform to the image of Christ, as Paul says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. So there are going to be some things that surprise people um, every week on the list, and and some of that is going to be um, because this is not necessarily that you agree with everything that it has been written in everything that's on the list, but because you're trying to get us to think about what is out there in the culture um, and how to read it. I'm going to use the word critically. Um, maybe mm-hmm. the word is convictionally or confessionally. So talk with us a little bit about what's on this week's list. And then let me be quick to say, it's not just a reading list. Um, uh, This week is a good example. There is also a video. Well, you know, I like to watch videos, and so I listened. You had Ravi, a Ravi Zacharias sample during the commercial break. I've watched hours and hours of Ravi Zacharias via YouTube, and I'm so thankful for it. So I always include a link to a book, and I include a video as well. Um, but what I'm trying to do in my list of articles, exactly what you said, is not always to say I agree with this person. Um, as Christians, we often kind of have the disclaimer, and I have the disclaimer, you know, in my weekly posts that I don't agree with everything here. But as Christians, we really don't need to be constantly afraid that we, you know, people assume because we're saying, hey, you should read this, that I endorse it 100%. So I intentionally will point to articles that are written by people who hold very different worldviews. I'll point to people on different ends of the theological spectrum. And so what I try to do is have some different categories, whether it's literature, pop culture, politics, theology, philosophy, and then some really practical pastoral things. Like this week, I point to an article um, that's a a quick, a five-minute theology of home decor by a friend of mine, Allison Mitchell. And so there's kind of a variety. You don't have to read them all. Just skim through it and see, oh, I think that would be really interesting, and check it out. I might have to write a five-minute theology of cooking dinner. There you go. That would be great. I would include my— I could totally do that. 
I, uh, I, I actually, I think I aspire to have a cooking with Carmen, uh, YouTube channel. So there you go. Um, can I taste so, test? Yes, absolutely. Taste and see that the Lord is good. I've already Amen. coined Tuesday as Tasty Tuesday. I mean, I, I know I'm, I might be, I might be moving into a theme here. Well, you know, I cook every night, right? And so, yeah. um, and when I'm going to be out of town for a few days, like I cook in advance so that my family has good, nutritious, delicious, wonderful food so that everybody will sit down at table together at dinner time. Um, and have that really critical um, family time. Like that's that's critically important to me. And so um, I am making that, um, you know, a, a celebrated custom and feasting together, sitting down with table fellowship. You know, I mean, I, I think Christ is made known in that in ways that, yeah. you know, we, we can otherwise just skip over if we just sit in front of the television. So anyway, there you go. There's my, well, that's that's my 30-second theology of cooking dinner. <laughs> It is deeply theological. I agree completely. So, Dan, um, give us a little uh, give us a little view into this week's worldview weekend reader. Do I have the words backwards? I'm just sometimes I'm terrible with that. Weekend worldview reader, yeah. So the weekend comes first, yeah. Um, This week I have a link to um, a book review at the Gospel Coalition of Richard Dawkins' latest book. And so I'll often have something that's kind of an analysis of atheism, or it's a positive, you know, um, positive assertion of atheism by an atheist. And that's a really helpful book review, so there's a link to it there. Um, I have a link to a critique of critical race theory by Neil Shenvey, who's out of J.D. Greer's church in North Carolina. He's who's kind been of on emerging. our show. We, we yeah, like he, him. He's great. He's like a he's homeschool wonderful. dad. Yeah. yeah. Um, and he is is becoming a prolific author and really a go-to source on that topic. So I've got a link to him. Um, I have a link to a free download to a book by Dante Stewart. It's an ad, a book for Advent. So that's in there. Um, I have a political book, um, an, a Rolling Stones article by Alex Morris on called False Idol, Why the Christian Right Worships Donald Trump. And that would be the kind of Which example can, that some people— Can I yeah. pause you there? Go, so for those, of you, for those of you who are listening and you just heard my conversation with Matthew Hawkins, the article that was the basis of the conversation I had with Matthew Hawkins is that article from Rolling Stone. And so if oh, you wow. want to grab a link to it, then you can go uh, to uh, theolatte.com and you can get this week's Weekend Worldview Reader and, uh, and you can click on that and then you will have that article as well. Absolutely. So there's another link to a—you you mentioned kind of summarizing concepts for Christians who might be new to them. So I've got a link to an article called Philosophy, a Guide for Christians. That's just kind of an introduction to why philosophy matters for Christians. So that's some of what's included in this week's installment of the Weekend Worldview Reader at theolatte.com. And just so people won't think that every single one of these things is long, um, if you were to click on the link to Offer a Map, Not a Menu by Eric Geiger— the whole thing mm-hmm. takes about 20 seconds to read because it's like uh, five one-sentence paragraphs. Yeah. So, you know, there's a little something there for everybody. I like it. It's, it's, a, it's, it's, it's just delightful. Um, okay, uh, Dan, what, um, what will the DeWitt family be doing over the weekend since it's Friday? Um, yeah, so we always, every Friday night um, when we're all in town, we do a pizza movie night. So we usually do homemade pizza, and, and we'll be watching a Christmas movie. I'm, I'm thinking, don't judge me, I'm thinking we'll watch Elf tonight. <gasps> Elf, Elf rises to, uh, it was actually, uh, I asked somebody the other day, you know, what's your favorite Christmas music? Elf, Elf topped the list. So there you go. Yeah. You have, you have good company. That's right. Hey, so that's thank you. 
We look forward to talking with you again. That's Dan DeWitt from Cedarville University. Uh, Check out Theolatte.com. Sign up for the Weekend Worldview Reader. Um, You will not only be smarter, but possibly more faithful by Monday. Thanks, Carmen. How's that that for an ad? There you go. All right. We'll be back. So one of the people who um, I like to you know, follow around, particularly on social media, is Beth Moore. And so uh, just a few minutes ago, she, uh, she posted this um, as an encouragement to those of us who are reticent to maybe pray really, really honestly. So she's, uh, you know, she's reminding us that God is always talking to us through his word. And, you know, hopefully we're listening with ears to hear. And then she says, talk back, right? She's totally right, right? So, um, you know, God is talking to us today through his word and through prayer, we talk back. So let's develop a dialogue today with our father um, who gives us access through the son and provides the Holy Spirit. Um, You know, it's just, let's just be mindful of that today. Uh, let, Let that be of great encouragement. So what are you reading today? Where are you? In the, Where in the word are you? That's the way I like to say it. Uh, I am obviously today in Luke chapter 6 because it is the sixth day of Advent. Um, where are you in the word today? Maybe you are in the Psalms or in the Proverbs. Maybe you are in Revelation or in one of the other Gospels. What is your Advent reading today? Let me know where in the word you are. Jesus reminds us in the sixth chapter of the Gospel of Luke that you know, basically what is going to come out of us, what it, what we are going to say, the words of our mouths are going to reflect what is in our heart. And so let our hearts be places where the word of God is sown and planted deeply. Let us have immersed ourselves, as Dan DeWitt just encouraged us. Let's immerse ourselves in the word, that what comes out of us is the word of God. All right, we will be right back with another. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.